But the way we at Westside accomplish these things and connect each other in this kind of body of Christ that, that, that Paul talks about so much is in our community groups. So real short, community groups meet weekly throughout the season um, in somebody's home, typically around a meal where we'll break open the Bible, we'll look at it, we'll talk about what happened during the Sunday, and we'll, we'll engage in biblical community and pray for each other. This is the primary way discipleship happens at Westside. And so that kicks back off here with our, our launch night, October, that should not say October, that's September, September 8th, 6 p.m. So ready? We're going to say something else together, okay? Launch night is when? September 8th, okay. We're going to do that here at 6 p.m. at Westside, but you got to sign up, okay? We're, we've come to the, the season, the transition um, here at Westside to where things are, um, it, we're scheduled to, to do new signups for community groups. So everybody has to sign up. Have you been in a community group? Sign up. Do you want to be in a community group? Sign up. Are you just thinking about being in a community group? Sign up, okay? And we're going to meet here on that day. Here's how you sign up. There's not going to be anything in the lobby. I'll be back there answering questions if you have any questions or need help, but we go to our church website page, westsidepb.org, okay? If you go to westsidepb.com, there is a Westside paint and body in Florida. That is not us. That's a true story, okay? Westsidepb.org, you're going to go up and you're going to click on community groups. And what that's going to do, it's going to pull up this page. Well, that's the church center app. Next one. We'll pull up this page. You scroll down, you choose the night of the week that you're available to meet. We have Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights that groups are meeting. You click on that, and then go down and click on join this group. It's that easy. Get your email, name, phone number, so they can, they can keep up with you. So really, how do, how do we sign up for community groups? Westsidepb.org, community groups, join this group, okay? I think that's the biggest bulk of what I have to tell you. If you have questions about that or you need help, I'll be out in the lobby afterwards. With that, we're going to turn our attention to the reading of God's Word this morning. We're in Psalm 132, so go ahead and grab your pew Bible. It'll be on page 576. All right, when you get to Psalm 132, like Parker said, page 576, if you have the blue Bible, say, His mercy is more. Um, after I finish reading the text, I'll say thanks. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond with thanks be to God because we're thankful to be able to have his word this morning. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne." If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to, sp to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. We're glad that you're here today as we have a lot of things coming up within the life of our church. And again, just to reinforce that idea of community groups is massively important for us. Um, we say that it's not a part of our church, but it's the heart of our church. And so please be a part of that. And that's really where we live life um, as we grow as a church and multiple services and things like that. This is the way to not only know others, but you yourself to be known as well. And so as um, today we are in Psalm 132. And today we are actually bringing to conclusion um, our series summer playlist. We're not going to be able to make it through every single one of the Psalms of the Ascent as we have journeyed through. And next week, as how many services do we have? 
one service, right? And we're actually beginning a vision series entitled Extraordinary Times. And so this is going to be really important for you to be a part of as we look at the future and what the Lord has for us um, this coming year here at Westside. And, and this is also a great time to sort of plug. And if you have a family member or a coworker or somebody that you've just wanted to invite and be a part of, the beginning of a series is always a great time to come and be a part of that. And especially a series like this where we're going to be looking at where we've been, where we are, and sort of where we are going. But as we bring to conclusion today, just a quick recap. You can go to our website and follow along um, as we've journeyed this summer through the Psalms of the Ascent. And the reason why we've journeyed and said that this is applicable to you is because the people of Israel multiple times a year would travel to Jerusalem to meet with God there in the temple per his command. And as they journeyed, no matter where they were in the region, they would journey. It would be a long, hot, sometimes dangerous journey. And they would meet, and as they sort of traveled, just like us, they, they had a playlist, if you will. And that is the Psalm of the Ascents. And the reason why we've studied this is because we've said that our journey with Christ is a journey. It's a pilgrimage, if you will. That what we understand is that this world is, is not our home. That we live in it, but we are not of it. And so many of us are in different seasons in our walk with Christ, that we've either just begun that or we're in a difficult season or some of us are in a joyful season. But what the Psalm of the Ascents do is they put in words the emotions that we have. And, and really in God's sovereignty today with us sort of bringing the series to a conclusion and also celebrating those people who are making a public profession of faith in baptism. Here's what's really cool. Uh, between both services today, we are baptizing 11 people today, right? Yeah, that's incredible. And, and Psalm 132 um, has sort of this theme and thrust that we're going to see really all throughout the service, whether we come to the communion table or witness someone being baptized. And, and maybe as a way of introduction, this will be helpful. Um, ra raise your hand if you've ever dealt with a contract before. Just raise your hand, right? Yeah, anybody, okay? Um, our world sort of revolves around contracts. Even just this week, I was at the Popper Bluff Library and logged on to use their Wi-Fi and had to agree to terms and conditions per a contract, right? Nobody ever reads those, right? They could even say, um, we want to own your house in order to use free Wi-Fi, and we just click agree and then continue to do that. And our world is structured around contracts, whether it's DirecTV, AT&T, Verizon, or, you know, God forbid, you buy a house or a vehicle and literally sign your life away, okay? Um, sometimes we're waiting in that process that they need to draw blood from us or something like that. And what a contract does is there's really two words that summarize a contract, and it's this, performance and law. That's, that's really the thrust of a contract, a contract is a mutual agreement between multiple parties that is dependent upon performance. Meaning, um, I'll never forget, uh, long before I loved Jesus and had roommates, we got a knock on the door one day, and it was from uh, municipal utilities. You know where I'm going with this, right? And uh, the gentleman knocked on the door, and we said hello, and he said, hey, this is so-and-so from Kennett uh, Municipal Utilities, and we are here to shut off your water today. Why? Well, because you haven't made payments, okay? And so we signed a contract that they would provide goods and services as long as we sent off that money each month. And it's based upon performance. And so if somebody does not perform to those standards, then there's something that is enforced with that, and that is law, now, you did not perform to the standards in which you agreed and signed that you would perform to. So now there is law that will uh, be brought to this situation in order to bring clarity. Our entire world revolves around contracts. That's the way that it is structured. But there is a theme and a thrust in Psalm 132 today that describes and shows us. Listen, this is so important. If it's your first time here or if you're not a Christian, if you're peeking over the fence and you want to know what this God thing is about, Psalm 132 describes to us how God relates with his people. How does God have a relationship with his creation, with his people? And it's not contract. 
but rather the word that we see in the thrust today is covenant. Covenant. It's not a word that we hear often, but if you look at the text, Psalm 132, verse 2, how he swore to the Lord, talking about David, how he vowed to the mighty one. And then when you look at verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath. And then verse 12, here it is. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I teach them. Covenant is the way that God relates with his people, enters into a relationship. And covenant's not a word that we use all the time. It's a big word, but, you know, we say oftentimes, so's mayonnaise. Okay, that's a big word too, all right? But we're going to learn something today about how God relates. And if contract is based upon performance and law, some of us have actually grown up and thought that that's how our relationship with God is. That, that our relationship with God is, is based upon our performance and that God loves me as long as I obey and do these things and try my hardest and read my Bible every day. And then if I skip my Bible reading plan one day, I try to double up on that. And the day that I skip my Bible reading plan, God's kind of mad at me today and I hope nothing really bad happens. And I didn't swear today or do this, that, or the other. And so God's love for me is based upon my performance. And then, if I don't live up to that performance, you better look out because God's like a kid with a magnifying glass burning ants, right? He is out to get me. And we project that type of relationship onto God. But the reality is is that God relates with his people through, through covenant. So if contract is based upon performance and law, covenant is based upon promise and grace. It's it's unbelievable to think about how how God enters into relationship with his people. The word covenant's not one that that we're used to. It's not like we come home from a hard day's work and somebody says, how was your day? And you say, oh man, it it was a tough day. Entered into a lot of covenants today. A lot, a lot of covenants today, right? It's something that that we're not used to. But actually, when we look at the scriptures, the first time that we see the word covenant used is in Genesis chapter 6. And, and, and in the original language, for, for sort of the two of you that care, the, 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 the Hebrew word looks like this, covenant, and, and it's pronounced bereath, bereath. And very simply, the word covenant means to cut. It, it means to cut. At its very purest and most simplest form, it means to cut. And actually, this word is so important for you to understand the scriptures that the Bible that you hold in your hand is divided by two covenants. Testament is a translation from the word covenant. We have an old covenant, testament to that covenant, and we have a new covenant or a new bereath, cutting, if you will. And, and, and in ancient times, a covenant looked like this. Two parties would come together. There would be an initiator of that covenant. They would pledge an oath to each other. And then there would be a sacrifice that would take place. Now, remember, this is ancient times. We're understanding something that is far beyond 2019. And in that sacrifice, what would take place, either a lamb or a goat or something like that, there would be a sacrifice, and then pieces of that sacrifice would be put on two sides. And then the two individuals that made the oath, that pledge, that covenant, would pass through those pieces of a sacrifice, symbolizing and saying that if I don't live up to my side of this covenant and this oath, let what happened to this sacrifice also happen to me. I mean, I mean, it was a very, very serious deal. Even understanding sort of Jewish and, and Hebrew culture, at a wedding, an ancient wedding sometimes, as the bride and groom stood there, there would be a little prick of each one of them, and they would make a solemn pledge together with blood. I mean, I mean it's literally where we derive sort of the phrase that you're as good as your word, if you will. So so a contract is based upon performance and law. But God relates with his people through through covenant, through promise 
and grace. And if I were to summarize sort of Psalm 132 as a springboard for us today, what is covenant? What's the big idea today? It's this. A covenant is God pledging himself to his people based on his own character. You see, that's what's interesting when we look in the scriptures. We see that that a covenant is is really one-sided in this deal. That, That when God enters into a covenant with his people, it is God pledging himself to them, saying that this oath, this promise is not based upon you, but rather it is based upon my own goodness and my own faithfulness. You see, listen, why is this applicable? Why is this important for us to understand? Well, first off, it's important to understand because it's a revealing of the character of God. This is how good and gracious our God is, that if you want to enter into a relationship with the creator of the universe, it is on God's terms. But secondly, the reason why it's so important to understand this is that this is also how we live with the people around us. That the love of God that enters in through our mind and hearts and changes our life. Listen, here's what I'm trying to say. We don't bail in relationships when things get tough. We don't. Christians don't do that. Why? This is good news. Because God didn't do that to you. Oh. God didn't do that to me. When when a breach happens in the relationship, listen, a covenant is so outlandish to understand that it's not God moving away. God going, you failed on your end of the bargain, so now I'm withdrawing myself. But rather, it is God moving and pressing in and pledging himself even more to that relationship. And there's really only one sort of symbol and institution that we have for this, and it's marriage. That's why why you can't play with this idea of marriage because we understand as Christians through the Scriptures that this is a picture of the way that God relates to his people. And so so maybe this will help. In, In our bedroom at home, this hangs in Courtney and I's bedroom. And, and, And it's a picture of us on our wedding day. And around the picture... Um, are the sermon notes and the vows um, from our wedding day. And it's, it's, it's right there as a reminder in our bedroom. And it talks about for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. You see, actually, I say this all the time in marriage counseling. The wedding vows have nothing to do with the wedding day. Nothing at all. They're a future promise. So when you say for better or for worse, that if you come and sit down in my office and say, our marriage is the worst it's ever been, my response is great. Great. Because you pledge to be here. You pledge to be here in this moment now. Right now in this moment, in the times of trial and lulls when things are low, that is the moment when we apply the pledge that we've made. Do you know what does not hang on our wall? Our AT&T phone bill, right? We're thinking about switching to cricket. I don't know. A lot of people are doing it, okay, right? It's not a contract. A contract doesn't hang on the wall because you go to a contract and you say, well, here in section four, item B, you said you would do X, Y, and Z, and that didn't happen, so now this contract is null and void. Performance and now law to bring bear on that. But rather, it is based upon promise and upon grace. And and really, when we look through the scriptures, the idea of covenant is so important that Psalm 132 speaks of one of the five major covenants in the Scripture. And so I want to do an overview of that. This is a lot. If it's your first time here at Westside, welcome. This is a lot, okay? So we're glad you're here. Um, God forbid we learn something today, right? And so if covenant is God pledging himself to his people, we look at the scriptures and we see that there's really sort of five major ones. There's a little bit debate about Adam in creation. I think there is one, but just for the sake of time, the first one that we see is this. 
we see Noah and his family in Genesis chapter 6. So we see that God has created everything good. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. There was a breach in the relationship. And what did God do? Did God say, that's it, I'm done. Actually, when we look at Genesis chapter 3, do you know who ran? Not God, but Adam and Eve. They ran away, but rather God asks Adam, where are you? And then it's this idea of be fruitful and multiply. And in Genesis chapter 6, we see that humanity is broken. That literally God says, everybody walking the earth, the intentions of their heart are evil. And so now we're going to start with a new creation. And we understand the flood, right? And, and, and sometimes we try to make the flood like hallmarky and like paint it on nursery rooms and stuff like that. But we sort of kind of glamorize it a little bit. Like an accurate description of the flood on a nursery wall would have dead bodies floating in the water, right? It's this idea of that God is holy and just and those who do not follow his ways, that there are consequences to that. But God, listen, comes to Noah. And listen, every child's story in every book gets this wrong. Every story is told that Noah was so just and right and did everything a-okay. So God chose Noah because Noah wasn't a bad guy. Wrong. God comes to Noah out of God's own mercy and grace. It had nothing to do with Noah's performance because we know three chapters later, Noah gets blitzed drunk, okay? I mean, I'm talking just, it's crazy, right? Has nothing to do with the goodness of Noah, but everything to do with the goodness of God. And so God, listen, doesn't run from it, but runs to and pledges himself even more. Then one of the, the second paramount one that's referred to all the time in the New Testament is Adam and his descendants. We see that God comes, or I'm sorry, Abraham and his descendants, that God comes to Abraham. He's first Abram, and he's worshiping pagan gods. God pledges himself to Abram, not out of Abram's own goodness. Abram wasn't following all the rules, this, that, and the other. He was worshiping pagan gods, and God comes to Abram and says, through you and through your descendants, it will be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea that I will bless the entire world through your offspring. And then we see through Abraham, literally, the nation of Israel is born. God's chosen people. God, again, pledging himself to his people, not based upon their performance, but upon his own character. Then the third one that we see in the scriptures is this, Moses and the Israelites in Exodus 19 through 20. We see that the story, right, it went wrong again. Abram, you know, Abraham literally a few chapters later after the covenant with God um, literally tries to prostitute his own wife. Right? I'm just saying, that's just in the Bible, okay? I'm just teaching the Bible here, right? Literally that Abram dro Abraham drops the ball and then Exodus, the book of Exodus opens up and that God sees his people in captivity, in slavery. And then God comes to Moses. Moshe, Right? Moses has killed a guy with his bare hands, hid the body in the sand. I'm talking Michael Corleone stuff, man, right? And God comes to Moses, who is in Egypt's household. He says, I'm going to raise you up, and I'm going to free my people. And we see God does some of the most miraculous things in the entire Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea, all of the plagues, all of those things. And we see again God pledging himself to his people based on his own character. And we see that literally Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God, to literally FaceTime God, right? To go have this meeting to sort of seal this covenant. And while Moses is up the mountain speaking with God, in Exodus there's lightning, there's thunder, there's all of this stuff. And the people of Israel are at the base of the mountain. Now, the Red Sea has just been parted. Some of the greatest miracles in the entire Bible have just taken place, and they are at the base of the mountain, and they say, we're bored. Moses has taken too long meeting with God. We want to worship something, right? So literally, they take all of the gold that they have, and they make a golden calf. 
I've always thought that was ridiculous. You couldn't have made a bear or a lion or something cool, right? But rather, the calf was the god of Egypt, and they worship an idol while a mediator is interceding for them. And we see that in God's goodness and his kindness, what does he do? He doesn't pull away, but he presses in even closer. And he says, you are my people that I have chosen. And even though that you've dropped the ball, I'm continually pledging myself to you. And then the next covenant that we see is really what Psalm 132 is based around. David and the kingdom of Israel. Psalm 132 is a recap of the Davidic covenant where God chose David, who was the runt of the family. The people of Israel wanted a king to rule over them. And God said, you don't want a king. It's not going to go well. They were like, we want a king. He was like, you don't want a king. They were like, we want a king. He was like, fine, you can have a king, right? And it didn't turn out very well at all because God said, you're going to place your hope in this king. You're going to place your hope in this king that will fail you. And we're so much more advanced today in 2019 because God forbid we think as a people that somebody sitting in a big white house would have all of our hopes and dreams, right? We're just so different than the people in the Bible. And what we see is that God comes to David and says, I want you to build me this house where my spirit's going to dwell. And then we see just a few chapters later, literally four chapters that David is on the rooftop of his mansion and he looks out and he sees Bathsheba and that David being the mediator for God and the covenant with the people drops the ball. But then what we see all through the scriptures are these prophets. God raises up these prophets who, um, I, I love the prophets in the Old Testament. I wish they could be around in 2019 because they were so politically incorrect it was ridiculous, right? God had these guys stand up and just rail against the culture. And they would constantly tell the people of God, you're straying from the covenant, you're straying from the covenant. But God is going to send someone. God is going to send a hero of the story. And we see Jeremiah stand up in Jeremiah 31. And he actually says that, that God's going to make a, a new covenant. And the last covenant that we see is the new covenant. And that's between Jesus and his church, his people. Listen, in those just few minutes, from a 30,000-foot view, what you have is a systematic view of the way that the God of the Bible relates with his people. And it's not this idea of performance and law, but rather it is about promise and grace. And there's always elements to a covenant. Listen, this is important for you to understand this. You've got to understand how God functions and works. This isn't one of those like five ways to have a new family, you know, sort of type of sermon or anything like that, but it's much more important than that because what this is doing is this is teaching you how to view God. And as A.W. Tozer says, the most important thought, the most important thought that any human being has is their first thought of God and how they relate as to who he is and how he relates to us. But there's always elements to a covenant. The first one is this, a mediator. There's a mediator. That God comes to an individual, whether it is Noah, whether it is Abraham, whether it's Charlton Heston, whether it's anybody, and he comes to that mediator and he says, you will mediate between me and my people. But it's not just a mediator, there's also a promise. There's always a promise. A promise of God's blessings. That this is who I am. That I am a God that is eager to bless his creation. And then there's always a requirement. These are sort of the standards of what this covenant is. And, and listen, some of us grew up, this is so important for you to understand this order. Please listen to me. This is the gospel, man, and I get jacked about stuff like this. The requirement, do you see how far down on the list the requirement is? It's third. God does not function with the requirement being first. When did God give the people of Israel the Ten Commandments? After he saved them out of Egypt. 
God did not come to them in Egypt and say, here are my top ten, right? Here are my top ten things that I need you to do, and when you accomplish these things, then I will save you out of slavery and out of Egypt. But rather, God shows His goodness and His power and His mercy and saves them out of Egypt and then says this, now, now that you are a saved people, now that I have saved you out of slavery and out of bondage, now live this way. Now live this way. God does not say live this way and then I will love you. God says I am love and this is how I demonstrate it and in light of that, now live this way. You see, the difference is this. Some of us grew up with an understanding that if I obey, then I'll be accepted. I just have a question for you. How's that going? How's that going? Because fear and insecurity and guilt and shame are poor motivators. That is an idea of a works-based God. It is not obey and then I will be accepted. In God's goodness and kindness and mercy, it is this. I'm accepted because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, I am now free to obey. You see, like, there's a movement that there's a ditch on either side of the road, right? So, so one ditch on one side of the road says, um, you better stay in line because, you know, um, eternity is forever and hell is hot, so you might need to make these right decisions. And it's this constantly beating in and lording over. And then the other side of the ditch is, well, we're under the new covenant, brother, and it's grace. It's grace. You ain't got to worry about nothing like that. Don't be, on the, don't be worrying about that obedience right there. It's all about grace, right? But what we see all the New Testament writers say now about this new covenant is that the standard has been raised higher because now the law of God is written upon our hearts and we have the greatest demonstration of God's love towards us in Christ. Listen, there's no plan B. There is no plan B for God to demonstrate His love to the entire universe, but we saw it displayed upon Calvary. And that love, that holy, righteous God who says, this is what I think about sin. This is how passionate I am towards brokenness. And at the same time, this is how loving and merciful I am. That I would pay for this very debt that you inquired. It is the most beautiful description of grace and truth. So please listen to me. It always starts with the mediator. Listen, God always moves. And then God always speaks blessing first. Always. Challenge me. Get your Bible, your highlighter, your pocket protector, and your little map, and we can go toe-to-toe about this, okay? God always speaks blessing. Then God says this. Listen, if you go outside these covenant bounds, it's not going to go well for you. I've always heard a preacher say it this way. When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. And and I always thought growing up as a kid that that God put those things in place to zap me when I got out of bounds. But it's, it's just like a loving parent tells a child. Don't play by the road. God, please don't play by the road. Please don't play by the road. Because why? Because that will incur danger and harm. And listen, when you read the Bible through that lens and you see God's design for sexuality or how we use money or anything, it's literally God saying, like a loving parent, don't, don't, don't go down that road. Please don't go down that road. There's a requirement, but then the last thing is massively important. It's this. There's a sign There's always a sign for this covenant, God pledging himself from Noah with the rainbow to Abram with the sign of circumcision to David with this understanding of the temple and the ark of the covenant. All of these things, God give us, listen, this is how good God is to us, that he gives us a tangible, physical sign that we can go back and that we can relate to, that we can see. Listen, why am I spending so much time on this? 
because it is massively important for some of us to understand that God, listen to me, that God does not run from your sin, but he's pressing in and constantly pledging himself to you, saying that this love, listen, the only thing that we can have to change our desire The only thing that we can ever have to change our desire is a new and greater desire. Here's what will never work for you. Whether it's pornography or money or lying or gossip or anything to sit there and go, I'm not going to do that today. 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 And I did that today. And then all of a sudden, it, it, it's this tangled wheel of your sin, but rather what you need is a new desire placed there. And what will keep you from those wayward affections is a new and greater affection. And so in Psalm 132, very, very quickly, there are three elements in this psalm of ascent that as the people of Israel have arrived at Jerusalem, one of the main elements, the main element of the worship service for them was to recall this covenant-keeping God. Why did we come? Why did we journey here? Why, Why are we doing this? We have come to celebrate the love and the magnitude and the mercy of this holy God. And there's three elements in this psalm that you could lay over every single covenant and see. The first one is this. God. God is the covenant maker. You see, the first elements of Psalm 132, if you look at it, verses 1 through 10, talk about David's oath to God. It talks about David pledging an oath to God. If you look in verse 1, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured. Here it is. How he swore to the Lord and vowed the mighty one of Jacob. Do you know what? It's saying, it's saying that David said, I'm going to do this for God. But when you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's the reverse order. The covenant didn't start with David saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and then God will love me. It starts with God coming to David, saying, You will sit on the throne. Look in the text how many times the words and phrase I will is used. Verse 11, I will set on your throne. Verse 12, that I shall teach them. Verse 14, I will dwell. Verse 15, I will abundantly. I will satisfy. Verse 16, her priests, I will clothe. Verse 17, I will make. Verse 18, I will clothe. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, anytime you see God, God, in your Bible say, I will and I shall. You underline it, you mark it, because that is God promising something. And it's important to know that God is batting a thousand on his promises. That's why we look back to this. Listen, here's what I'm trying to say. God always makes the first move. Always. What you're going to see in just a moment of these people in these baptismal waters is not them saying, I found God. It's them saying, God found me. God chased me. God found me. One of my brothers one time experienced a significant sort of deconstruction phase in his life where he just had all of these questions and his faith was in doubt and he was very unsure of many, many things. And he went to his pastor and he said, I'm not going to be here for a while. I need to do some stuff. I need to go on this journey. I, and he said this phrase, I need to find God. And the pastor, in full of grace and mercy, said, Josh, Josh, we don't find God. God finds us. Do you understand that that's the core of salvation? We sing about it. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what the divorce is. I don't know what the addiction is. I don't know what the anxiety is. I don't know whatever you're experiencing, but here's what I do know. God's not running from you. 
God's not running from any of those things, but rather through people, through circumstances. And this is so important for us to understand that sometimes we get so frustrated with the circumstances in our life. And what we say is, if our circumstances would only be different, then everything that I'm thinking and feeling would be different in my life. And where is God in this? But the reality is that what if, what if in God's sovereignty and in His goodness and kindness, He is orchestrating those circumstances in such a way for Him to reveal Himself to you in a way that He never has before? It is in the brokenness that God finds us. God is the covenant maker. And then the second one's really, really positive and good. It's this. We are the covenant breakers. God's the covenant maker. He initiates it. God always makes the first move. He slides into our DMs first, right? And then we are the covenant breakers. And look at where this is found in verse 12. If your sons keep my covenant... And my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. It's the requirement. Now remember, it's come pretty far down the list. But we know four chapters later, like I mentioned, David breaches the covenant. And we know that Solomon sits on the throne. And we know that Solomon ends up marrying more than one woman. Which, by the way, guys, look up here. Bad idea. Every time, okay? You can't figure out the one that you have, much less seven more, okay? Bad idea. And we see through the pagan worship that Solomon, and then we see judges, and we see all of this. It's this turmoil. Listen, this is the 30,000-foot view of the Bible. God is good. He creates. He blesses. His creation believed the lie that they could be God rather than worship God. And they breach the covenant. Do you know what the great, every time I watch any of these things, they're, they're, they're so deeply profound and they're massively theological. And, and what I'm referring to are the theological series of movies called Jurassic Park. <laughs> right? I mean, like, I, th- th- these movies are fun and they're fantastic, but, like, I, and I love them. I'll watch, like, Dinosaurs in Space, Jurassic Park, 95, right? I mean, there's all types of these movies, but what's the, what's the thread in the movie? We figured out we can recreate dinosaurs. Oh, snap, we can't control dinosaurs. They're eating everybody, right? Then the next movie is we figured out how to genetically modify, and we're going to build bigger walls now, and... Oh, no, they're eating everybody in the entire movie, right? It's this constant thing of, we listen, we can control this. We'll create bigger walls, better rules, and then we'll be able to do this. And that's just like us in our sin. I can control this. I'm the exception. I'm not them. I can handle this. And listen, here's what I'm saying to you. We don't need more rules, We don't need more rules. Listen to me. What we need is a savior. We don't need advice. We need good news. When when someone is drowning and getting ready to die, you don't give them advice. You don't tell them, hey, kick harder. Hey, do this. You jump in the water and save them. And the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and that his creation rebelled against him. And then John opens up and says, the word became flesh. There was a moment and a climax that my mind cannot understand that it says from all eternity, there was a bloody covenant signed between God the Father and God the Son. And God said, no more rules, no more advice. I'm coming down there. And in the flesh, God inhabited, being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin and dying for us and saving us. This is good news, not advice. And when we understand who we are in this role, it is a very humbling thing. A very humbling thing, listen to me, to self-evaluate and to realize, who am I to say that when I read the Old Testament, the New Testament, that I'm not them? 
We are. That's who we are in the story. Oh my, but there's good news. God's the covenant maker. We are the covenant breakers. And Jesus, oh, Jesus is the covenant keeper. You say, Jason, this is Psalm 132. This is the Old Testament. Where is Jesus in this psalm? If you look in verse 11, the writer says this, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. And he says this, One of your sons of your body I will set on your throne. Now we understand that this is, this is a dual prophecy, that, that Solomon comes, David's son, and sits on the throne, but then Solomon fails. But God says that there will be someone always on the throne. And literally the phrase, from your body, means from your lineage, from the, here it is, the womb a king shall rise. And then when we open to the very first page in our New Testament, we see that Matthew writes of a genealogy. And he starts with Adam. He makes his way to David. Then he makes his way to the son of Joseph, Jesus the Messiah. The very first Christian sermon that is preached in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, Peter says these words, but he was a prophet speaking of David and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he would not abandon him to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses. Do you see this grand story that God is writing? That literally all the way from Genesis to Revelation, that God promised that there would be somebody who would come and keep the covenant upon our behalf. So when we look at the elements of a covenant, where do we see this with Jesus? We see it on the last night that he had with his disciples. You see, his disciples would have known the covenant, the story, the story that God is writing. And then in Luke's gospel, it says this, and he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. I mean, there, there would have been a gasp. A new covenant? But what's this new covenant based upon? What is going to be the requirement? What is going to be the payment in my blood which is poured out for you. It's all there. It's all there. We have a mediator. We have a promise. We have a requirement. And we have the sign. That's why at Westside, every week when we gather, we do this in remembrance. We celebrate the new covenant that Jesus Christ instituted with his own body and blood poured out on our behalf. And in just a moment, you're going to see people pass through the baptismal waters which is the declaration of God making the first move. That God found me and birthing, just like a child is born through blood and water. We see through the blood and water of Jesus Christ and through the baptismal waters that we enter into this new covenant. Listen, Westside, if I'm trying to sum, summarize all of it right here, it's a real fancy thing, but it's this. It is literally all about Jesus. All the time, 24-7, your marriage, your finances, death, cancer, whatever it is, it is always about Jesus. Because in Christ, we see that new covenant upon our behalf. And so as we close, I want to read this to you and listen to these words. Jesus is a better Noah 
who brings judgment of sin, salvation by grace to the family of God, and a new world free from sin and its effects. Oh, Jesus. Jesus is a better Abraham. The blessings of the nations of the earth. Jesus is a better Moses as God's prophet who fulfilled the law for us. Always God's wrath to pass over us because His shed blood conquered our Pharaoh of Satan, redeemed from sin, and journeys with us towards a home despite our sin and grumbling. And Jesus is a better David who is seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne, ruling as King of kings and is coming again to establish His eternal and global kingdom of peace and prosperity. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And as the New Testament writer in Hebrews would say that all of those covenants, they pointed to something. They pointed to Jesus. Listen, what we don't need in here today is more advice and more rules. What we need today is a better picture of Jesus. And in our faith and in our humility, we say that we are the covenant breakers, but you are the covenant maker and keeper. And a covenant is God pledging himself to us. I don't know what you're going through today, but this is good news. God's not running from you. God can handle it. He's not scared. And as we examine ourselves and come to the table, we see him pledging himself to us so that in turn we could live a life full of acceptance and obedience. Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful Grateful for Psalm 132 and this journey that we've walked through. God, seeing that you have pledged yourself to us, not based upon performance and law, but based upon the promise and the grace of Jesus Christ. There was a requirement. We could not fill it. But Jesus did upon our behalf. God, I pray that somebody walks out of here today viewing you differently than when they walked in. And God, as the covenant community today, as we witness those who declare, God found me. God, may we be the covenant community and speak blessings and gather around and rally around for this now is a covenant community bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. Examine us. And may we see Jesus. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of the covenant keeper, Jesus Christ. Would you stand right where you're at and come forward and partake in the elements of the new covenant today?